2: Welcome to New Books in Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Patterson, and today I'm speaking with Forrest Stewart about his new book, Ballad of the Bullet, Gangs, Drill Music, and the Power of Online Infamy. Welcome to the show.
1: Thanks. Thanks, Sarah. This is fantastic.
2: Can you start us off by telling us a little bit about you?
1: Yeah, of course. Um, I am an associate professor of sociology at Stanford University, I'm also the director of the Stanford Ethnography Lab. And I guess broadly speaking, my research, um, I study the causes and consequences of urban poverty and violence. So my first book is about how hyper-policing and and criminalization shapes everyday life for residents in poor communities. And then this book kind of shifts that lens a little bit and asks how social media platforms are impacting daily life in urban poverty
2: well welcome to the show so you start the book off by talking about joseph coleman can you give us some background information on him and how he was important for the birth of this book
1: absolutely and the book really does start and my kind of journey in writing this book starts with joseph coleman Um, joseph coleman was an an 18 year old man uh, living on the south side of chicago in englewood And I first learned about Joseph Coleman while I was directing an after-school violence prevention program. And this program was set up to use kind of cognitive behavioral therapy and an arts curriculum to help kids cope with the violence that they were experiencing in their communities. And they told me this story about Joseph Coleman, who had been killed... Um, about a year and a half or so before I began the program, and Joseph Coleman had been been riding his bike down a street, um, and a you know a car suddenly pulled up and and shot him, and he 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 died shortly thereafter. Um, and I was I heard this story, and you know I heard a lot of stories, really terrible, tragic stories about about deaths like this. But this one really stood out, and and it really got me thinking differently about urban poverty and and violence uh, today. And it's because um, there was so much going on on social media in the lead up to Joseph Coleman's death. So Joseph Coleman um, was an aspiring rapper, an aspiring gangster rapper in in Chicago and all over the world now. Uh, We sometimes call this drill rap. Um, And so he was making... Um, kind of homemade music videos, homemade songs, and uploading these things to YouTube. Um, he was gang affiliated. He was in the Gangster Disciples in Chicago. And um, a bit before his death, a bit a bit before his murder, he had uploaded a series of music videos, uh, one particularly inflammatory music video where he's taunting the Gangster Disciples' rivals, the Black Disciples. And he and his buddies are in this music video and they're shirtless and they're waving around assault rifles and handguns and and talking about how they're black disciple killers. Um, Joseph Coleman kind of gets into this online war of words and um, tweets out his location. He tweets out, I'm on 69th in Princeton, essentially like, come and find me. And just a few hours later, someone came and found him. So likely used his location that he broadcasted on Twitter. Um and came and 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 came and sought vengeance and so I heard this story and it was it was something that i hadn 't necessarily really heard before i you know total transparency before this time i was I was not the biggest social media user i didn 't have a Twitter account I reluctantly was on Facebook, but it became really clear to me because after I heard joseph coleman 's story, I started hearing so many more stories like this and and young people in my program just kept talking about you know, how they would sometimes get beat up by listening to the wrong song in the wrong neighborhood, or someone would look at them at school at a music video they were watching on YouTube and, and make the conclusion that they were in a particular gang that was at war with another gang. So there was just so much, so much life, um, and, and so many high stakes interactions going on online that I said, you know, I, if I, if I'm going to understand violence, if I'm going to understand this here on the South side of Chicago, um, then I really need to need to think about social media. And um, at the same time that I'm doing this, I found that, you know, I tell my colleagues uh, about this, I tell my sociology colleagues, my academic colleagues about this. And 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 everyone seemed really shocked because, you know, the first question a lot of people actually asked me was, Oh, I didn't know that, you know, gang members or you know, young kids on Chicago's South Side even are on the internet. And so there was this. Between what was happening on the ground and, and what we were talking about as sociologists, it seemed like the, this gulf was giant. And you know, the more I dug into this, the, the, the wider it seemed. I actually, you know, it wasn't long after I heard this story that I wanted to know how prevalent this was. And in the neighborhood, in the six miles or so uh, um, surrounding uh, Joseph Coleman's uh, site of his murder, Um, You know, if you count up all the different gang factions and groups who are making this kind of social media content, I calculate there's about one new group for every two blocks making who has made at least one of these kind of inflammatory YouTube videos. So clearly this is going on on the ground, but then I just couldn't find anyone in sociology really talking about this stuff. Um, and so really that launched the book. I wanted to write the book that could try to explain um, why young men like Joseph Coleman are are going online and uploading this kind of content, um, how they're doing it, right? Clearly, we're talking about communities where, you know, these young guys that I met are living homeless. They, you know, sometimes don't know where they're going to get their next meal, but they found these innovative ways to overcome that deprivation to upload some of the most watched content online. And then uh, the third question was, what are the consequences for, for young people doing these things? And so that's really, those three questions are really what um, motivates this book.
2: Considering you're using social media, but you're also talking to young people, can you tell us more about your methodology for the book in terms of how you collected the materials?
1: Yes, I, this is a, this is a, a, I think a really important question. And it's, it's, been an interesting one to, to think about now that, um, I feel like since I began this project, so many of my graduate students who, um, come to work with me now want to do stuff online. Um, and, and, and there isn't necessarily like, I think a good, um, standardized systematic kind of methodology for doing this kind of work, certainly not in sociology. So, um, I, i kind of discovered some of these methods as as I went along kind of trial by error. And so I'm an ethnographer. I have always kind of privileged face-to-face interactions as, you know, a key site where um important sociological stuff goes on. And so this was the first thing that I knew I had to do. I had to um get as close as I could and shadow young people like Joseph Coleman for as long as I possibly could. So luckily, um, in you know this really fortuitous conversation with a young man in my program in my uh, after school violence reduction program he um volunteered to introduce me to his younger brother who was a shooter one of these one of the trigger men in um one of the south sides kind of most notorious gangs that had become kind of like this you know music group it was like a, a gang slash music group and they were incredibly prolific on social media And he made an introduction. Um, I met these guys. It took about four months. And we had established enough of a relationship where I I pitched to them, hey, you know, like, can I just hang out with you every single day from the time you wake up to the time you go to sleep? And lo and behold, which is, it always shocks me in every ethnographic project I start, they said yes. Uh, So for about two years, from around 2014 through 2016. Um, I would wake up in the morning, uh, drive down um, to this particular neighborhood, and usually I'd be out hanging out with guys, watching videos, uh, shooting dice, um, just killing time um, until late in the evening when I'd come home and I'd do my field notes. And so there was certainly like that kind of um, you know, classic ethnographic work. But then I also discovered that, that one of the things I needed to do was to be there next to them while they were going online. So while they were posting things online, while they were reading things online, while they were sending text messages to various people. Um, And so this became, I don't know, it was almost like this simultaneous shadowing them while we were offline and while we were online. And this actually revealed a whole lot of really key insights for this book because one of the things that I discovered was that there was just this insane amount of exaggeration and sometimes just like fabricating the activities that they were doing. Um, you know, one of the first times that this really hit me while I, when I realized it was so important not to just read their tweets and not to just hang out with them, but to do them both at the same time. Um, there's a young man uh, who, who I, I call AJ in the book. And uh, at one point in time, AJ and I, it's a cold kind of Chicago winter afternoon um a j is is in his apartment. I'm there in his apartment with him uh with the uh two children that he's looking after um the children of his girlfriend of these toddlers and we're sitting there kind of babysitting them. He's kind of you know affectionately kind of letting them climb all over him and he's feeding them and he's constantly up and down to the refrigerator to get them to get them what they need and I'm watching on the couches at the same exact time he posts on Twitter this like menacing photo of him and his buddies standing out on a corner, kind of daring their rivals to like come and try a drive-by. And he's, you know, at the same time that offline he's doing like these sweet, fatherly, loving things online for anyone who's not sitting there next to him in his living room, online you would imagine that he's like right now posted out on the block, um, gangbanging, right? Um, and so I realized, you know, this is, this is a really key place where ethnographers and sociologists and social scientists more generally can make some inroads when we're doing work on how people interface with, uh, digital technology and interface with social media, um, is to do this kind of simultaneous, simultaneous fieldwork. So I did that. Um, you know, I, over the, over the course of the two years, there were lots of, of moments for me to do this, um, I, I end up becoming like the kind of go-to mode of transportation for young men. In the yeah, I thought that was
2: interesting. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. This actually, you know, at first, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Carol Stack, um, her, her classic book, All Our Kin. And she has, she has this passage in there where she talked about how, um, you know, people started relying on her for her car. And she ended up like putting her car away and almost like pretending like she didn't have a car because she thought it was going to like undermine her her access if people became too reliant on her. And what I found was the exact opposite, that these were young men who had no way of, say, like getting to court or no way of of being able to get across town, right? Because they had to crisscross all kinds of gang territory. But like these car rides that I was able to provide ended up being like these, you know, sometimes like four hour long interviews where we would just get deep into all kinds of topics. And, And the fact that I was willing to spend, you know, four hours driving these guys around from the courtroom, from the courthouse to you know, mom's house to a funeral, right? Like on the same day, built a ton of trust. And it, and it gave me this opportunity to say, Hey, last night I saw this on Facebook. I saw you post this picture. Like, let's, can we spend an hour and just like, can you walk me through the, the events and interactions that led up to this? And then can you walk me through the couple of days after this? Like, how did this kind of spill out from online into the streets? Um, and, and, and since I've been doing this, I think that this is, uh, a, a kind of approach and methodology that I think, um, ethnographers going forward, uh, are, are, will do well to embrace.
2: We're going to get into sort of the meat of the book, but I was hoping you could sort of zoom out for a second and help set the stage for anyone who might not be familiar with any of the concepts in your book and sort of define some of the important terminology. So crowdsourcing, what what drill music is, what going legal is, and some of the concepts that you bring up in your book. This is a good
1: good opportunity to zoom out and, and ask like what what is this book trying to do out there? Um, I think one of the one of the big things I'm trying to do well one, I mentioned this previously is just try to offer you know one of the first, though not the first one of the first um, kind of systematic treatment of what the digital economy looks like in, in impoverished neighborhoods. We, we, we've kind of missed this. I, I feel like we're talking about Uber, or we're talking about WeWork, or we're, we're, we're often focusing on the social media lives of, of middle class and, and privileged folks. And so certainly just kind of like base level, I wanted to do that. And in the process, what, one of the things that I wanted to do was to get us to think differently about the ways that technology creates and reproduces inequality. Um, and I think the dominant way that we tend to think about the relationship between um, inequality and technology is through this notion of the digital divide. And this con- this this term, this concept, I think, is coming up even more now in our kind of COVID nineteen moment, where we're seeing that you know low income communities, communities of color, families in these neighborhoods and communities lack the kinds of computing power and high speed internet access to continue kind of life as normal as, as more privileged folks can. So, you know, not having a laptop to do the kind of downloading of homework packets from third grade or, or to do the kind of online classes for high school. This is certainly like sending um, those who do have that stuff further ahead while keeping back the folks who don't have these things. And, and I, and I think it's a really important, conversation to have about the digital divide in terms of access. But the more I spent time with young people making social media content, the more I realized that this this focus on access was really missing something important. Um, You know, I was about halfway through my study when suddenly Pew Research and this University of Chicago Research came out that showed that despite the fact that Black teens Tend to suffer from this digital divide in access, are actually the demographic that is creating the most original content of any other peer group. So, black teens are actually making social media content. These are like these, you know, TikTok dance videos, and Twitter memes, and Instagram stories, and Instagram live videos. Um, they're actually making these things at twice the rate as white teens. And so, so that made me realize, oh, wow, the digital digital divide conversation about access isn't quite getting there. So I thought, well, maybe there's, there's another dimension. So rather than thinking about quantitative frequency of access, um, I thought maybe it's time to start thinking about like the qualitative uses of those technologies and the qualitative consequences of those technologies. So it's like, let's imagine a world where we have two people at different places in the kind of socioeconomic racial hierarchy, and they're both interfacing with ostensibly the same technology. If we're kind of thinking differently, according to this kind of notion that I call digital disadvantage in the book, rather than the digital divide, what we're going to do is we're going to ask, how do those two different people interface and use that technology, given where they are in the offline sets of inequalities? And then when they use it in those differential ways, how are the consequences for them different um, when they they use it? And and how does society perceive them differently? Um, You know, a a really easy, quick example of this is is to think about how young white kids with guns on social media are seen versus young black kids with guns on social media. Um, you You know, young people in my field work were getting... You know, snatched up by cops and getting, you know, cases put on them and guns put on them by prosecutors based on guns or even talk of guns or hands in the shape of guns on their social media. But everywhere I look on the news, I see applause for, you know, young white kids with their hunting rifles, you know, talking about the, you know, the, the right to bear arms and they become like kind of gun rights symbols. And and so I think that this is a, that's a really neat, tragic, uh, but I think easy way to understand how I'm trying to think differently about the connection between technology and inequality that, you know, the technological uses, like the pictures that somebody puts up on Facebook are read through racialized lenses, are read through class lenses. So I'm trying to, trying to get us to think differently about inequality and I'm doing it through this case study of um, how young men predominantly are creating social media content. And the social media content that I'm focusing on is drill music. Um, drill. Um, this is a Chicago, this is a Chicago um, term and invention. And drill music is essentially what gangster rap looks like in the digital age. Um, so this is like if if NWA you know, from the 90s and 80s had a Facebook account, YouTube, YouTube page, uh, Twitter account, Instagram account, what we can imagine is like, they wouldn't have to wait for a record label to set up studio time and record them and market them and, you know, do all the things and all the gatekeepers get involved. Drill is like this direct to consumer DIY lo-fi homemade gangster rap. Um, that young men are able to make from their bedrooms. And rather than a song or music video taking months to get to a consumer, sometimes it's a matter of of days. Sometimes it's a matter of minutes. And because of that, there's a kind of immediacy to drill rap. Um, There's an immediacy in a kind of aesthetic sonic sense. So, um, you know, things are are a little bit more, they sound homemade. Uh, And there's an immediacy in the kind of Uh, content. So the drive-by shooting that happened this morning um, can make its way into song lyrics, um, can make its way into a music video that's up on the internet by this afternoon. Um, So Drill becomes um, loaded with all kinds of new social significance precisely because it it becomes this kind of way of communicating between different groups in the city. So you know, rivalries are often um, articulated between two neighborhoods. Yes, they're doing things offline, of course, they're always doing things offline. But there's also like this constant chatter back and forth, like someone sneaking into somebody else's gang territory, filming a music video in front of their housing projects, um, you know, escaping out, using this music video, putting it up. And it's, it's this message that, you know, like, my rivals are, are so weak or so careless that they didn't see me slip in and, and I've recorded this music video. And so of course that then demands some kind of response. So it's, it's, I would say it's far more immediate and communicative um, in that way. And uh, maybe, yeah, you mentioned this, this notion of crowdsourcing. Um, there's this really interesting uh, Kanye West lyric uh, that I think <laughs> describes it really nicely from a couple years ago um, about crowdsourcing your self esteem. Uh, which, which I think is like this, this, this interesting way to, to think about the kind of emotional rewards uh, that young men get from this stuff. We can certainly talk about some of the monetary rewards and, and some more of the emotional rewards a little bit later. But, um, you know, a lot of these young folks are turning online um, because the old ways of not just making ends meet, but also kind of like making a name for yourself or developing street cred have kind of dried up um, in a lot of these communities. Some of the old opportunities that, that old-style old gangs gave you or the crack economy gave you. Now, if you go online, um, if you amass enough clicks, if you amass enough views, if you amass enough likes, you can spin that into all kinds of things, um, into cash, into drugs, into guns, uh, but particularly in recognition and dignity and a name and street cred. Um, so yeah, so I think, you know, there's a whole lot of kind of crowdsourcing of dignity and respect going on online that, that certainly couldn't go on, I would say, you know, a decade ago, half a decade ago.
2: So you mentioned Chicago. Can you give us more background on Chicago's South Side and how it's important to the story and the development of drillers?
1: One of the things that I've, I've tried to argue in this book, and this is about, this is that first question of like, why are young people going online and making this kind of content? If we put it in its historical context, it makes a whole lot of sense and actually becomes a whole lot less surprising. Uh, so Chicago South Side, in my opinion, has been one of America's kind of ground zero for um, kind of disinvestment, uh, deindustrialization, the rise of the crack economy in that vacuum, um, and the rise of what the sociologist Sudhir Venkatesh called the corporatized gang. These were gangs throughout the '80s and the 1990s that consolidated lots of gang factions uh, to kind of run in a franchise mode, the crack economy. Um, on Chicago's South Side, this was really vibrant. If you were a 13 year old in the 1990s, you could typically count on, if you wanted this option, you know, hitting puberty, joining the gang, being given a corner, maybe a gun. You can work your way up through the kind of drug economy of the gang into an officer role, right? This is your kind of, this is how you make ends meet. This is how you establish some dignity and some street cred. Well, toward the end of the 20th century, all that stuff starts to crumble. So we see the crack economy really... Start to bottom out as new drugs are entering, so opioids, clearly, as we're seeing today, but also kind of designer synthetic party drugs, ecstasy, MDMA, Molly, these kinds of things come in. So crack kind of loses its hold. also we've got We've got the drug war going on. Um, so So crack, even as like a, a kind of the the kind of symbolic meaning of crack, changes quite a bit. Um, and as that crack market starts to erode, so do the gangs that were set up organizationally precisely to capitalize on the, I, the very specific and particular things that you needed um, in order to sell crack efficiently as an organization. At the same exact time that that's then happening, the, uh, the FBI and municipal police departments like the Chicago police departments begin working together to start to take out the leaders of gangs. Um, so the RICO Act um, comes through and is now making arrests in ways that you, know, you arrest a foot soldier, you get him to turn on a guy above him in the ranks. Then you arrest him, you get him to turn on somebody above them. So at the same time that like, um, it becomes less lucrative to be in one of these major gangs, it becomes a liability to become an officer or a leader in one of these gangs. And so what happens is that these major corporate gangs kind of splinter and they balkanize into what is now in Chicago referred to as renegade gangs. So these are gangs that don't necessarily fall in line with their affiliation. So you can imagine like back in the day, if you were a black disciple, you don't go to war with black disciples. All that's kind of out the window um, because these smaller renegade gangs are essentially a lot more leaderless, and they're also trying to fend for themselves in this new drug economy, new illegal economy that is a lot more fractured, uh, a lot less organized, and that's the context that the digital economy arrives in. Um, so young men are kind of rudderless. You know, now when you turn thirteen, you kind of look up, and it's like, well, that major viable option that I used to have to put some money in my family's pocket, put some food on the table, get some dignity, it's pretty wiped out. I mean, the other option that you have is what, um, I don't know, for, for some of my guys, it was like, what, working at Corner Bakery in downtown Chicago or working at the airport or working, you know, for minimum wage at a, at a warehouse job. Um, they don't necessarily really want that, so they're really looking around for, for what the next kind of opportunity is. And in 2012, that opportunity arrives. Um, in the form of 17-year-old Keith Cozart, known as Chief Keith, um, imagine that 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 a lot of folks may be listening to this um, have heard of Chief Keith. He is now you know all over Spotify and um, all over iTunes. You can you can pick up his stuff. But in 2012, he's 17 years old. He's on house arrest. He's in his grandmother's house, and for a year or so, he's been kind of uploading drill rap drill music to soundcloud to youtube and nothing's really hit nothing's really gotten too popular but he records this song and a music video in his grandmother's living room with a bunch of his friends called i don't like and it blows up uh it goes viral on youtube it gets you know tens of millions of hits and it kind of breaks through into the mainstream and, you know, it hits, I think it hits like 70 on like the billboard top 100. Um, and he catches the the ears and eyes of a whole lot of consumers who are now imagining that they have, they have gotten this kind of direct picture of what the hood looks like. So it's like, here's this urban no-go zone that a lot of kind of, I don't know, I'd say middle-class folks say on Chicago's north side were never able to go to. Uh, or felt scared going to, now they've got like a direct to consumer view from this kid, the 17 year old kid. Um, and it's just like this titillating, sensational, you know, gun filled, murder filled, gang filled image that kind of like hits all the popular stereotypes um, and, and hits that voyeuristic streak. Um, Interscope Records comes along, and they've crowdsourced um, essentially, um, you know, talent. They're looking to see who's blowing up on the internet before they sign anybody up. They signed Chief Keef up to a six million dollar record deal. Uh, we've got Kanye West comes through and remixes uh, this song and puts it on one of his albums, and Chief Keef punches his ticket out of the south side of Chicago into Los Angeles. And the next time we see him kind of on Instagram, on Twitter, he's driving, you know, million dollar sports cars and he's in a mansion. And so you've got, you know, every 13 year old through like 25 year old on Chicago South Side who has either like gone to school with Chief Keefe or knows somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody who knows Chief Keefe now says, oh my, this is a model that I can follow. And the model is, be as ruthless and tap into as much of the kind of urban predator stereotype that's been holding this community down for so long. Tap into that and commodify it. If people want to stigmatize us as being somehow willfully criminal young people, well, then let's let's sell it to them. Like we should be able to profit from this stuff. Um, and so this becomes the kind of new model uh, for, for upward mobility. It's, it's turned to the influencer economy and present yourself as, as violent as you can possibly present yourself.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: To follow up on that a little bit, I mean, how are the young men using social media? And I mean, you mentioned it a little bit. Who is their audience? Who are they trying to speak to?
1: These are great questions. Um, I I I devote a couple of chapters in the book to this. So so I'll I'll tackle the first one first in terms of how how precisely are they doing this. So there's there's kind of a two-stage process, and I'll I'll just stick to the the first stage for now. There's a two-stage process, and it's all about authenticating yourself as a violent super predator online. And what you do is you record your drill music video. You put that up on YouTube, that's step one. And step two is use all the rest of the platforms available to you Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook to then uh, validate all of those claims that you've made in your music. So, if in your song you're saying, you know, I've got an AK 47, I'm shooting at my rivals, or I make so much money, um, you then try to produce as much evidence for those claims as you can on social media. And so just kind of sticking with the with the with the music generation stuff. These folks like yes, it's a it's a it's a pretty titillating and sensational image that they're that they're creating, but there's a whole lot of titillating and sensational images out there on the internet and there's just so much noise and so much content on the internet. These guys face a problem that all content creators face, which is how do I break through the noise? How do I get people to watch my video instead of that cat video or instead of you know, some somebody doing a cover of like Rihanna on their piano at home. Like, how do, how do I do this? And one of the things I found, and it's, and it's one of the reasons why I want us to think differently about the digital divide, is that the, many of these young people have become incredibly savvy at manipulating the search algorithms that direct eyes and ears online. So, so all of our social media platforms um, heavily rely on algorithms right so these are we can think of these as just programs that get to know the kinds of things we're watching that we're liking that we're scrolling and clicking on and as we spend more time on these platforms this algorithm this program learns more and more and more the kinds of things that we like the kinds of things we're likely to want to watch and it delivers those things because the more screen time these platforms can produce the more ads I'm going to watch the more clicks I, you know, more videos I watch, the more banner ads I can watch, the more banner ads I watch, uh, the more money they can make on advertising. So these young men have realized um, there's got to be some way that I can beat this algorithm. Like how do I get someone who's watching maybe a Chief Keith video to, to watch my video? And they learned just kind of through trial and error that at the time, uh, in this case, YouTube's algorithm, what it would do was essentially scrape song titles, um, video titles. And it would, if you were, say, watching a video with Chief Keith uh, in the title, um, so it's like Chief Keith, his song, I don't like, it would look for other videos that have the term Chief Keith in it. And after it finds those, it compares those videos to other videos that you've watched as a, as a viewer. So these young guys realized, oh, there's a couple ways that I can get that to redirect you to me. One way, um, and it's the hard way, is I can get Chief Keith to do a music video with me. Um, and that way it says Chief Keith and Forest and the song title. So every time somebody's watching a Chief Keith video, our little video will pop up on the right side of the YouTube interface under suggested videos. And the way YouTube works, as soon as that first Chief Keith video is done playing, it'll automatically play the video that Chief Keith and I have made. Um, But now this is hard, right? Like Chief Keith doesn't just want to do a video with anybody. So um, there's this kind of economy that's popped up called the feature economy, where I can pay that person a certain amount of money to do a song with me so that we can share a title. In YouTube, so the young men um, in this group that I was hanging out with, uh, I refer to them as the Corner Boys or CBE Corner Boys Entertainment. Um, They would charge about six hundred dollars to other groups, less popular groups, to do a feature with them, and so this would entail, you know, about thirty seconds of rapping. Uh, they put that they 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 put that into the song, and then even more money if you wanted them to appear in your video with you. So these young men were making pretty good money because everyone's trying to like juke and manipulate the YouTube algorithm. So that's the first way that you can trick the YouTube algorithm. The second way, um, it's the easier way, but it's also the more dangerous way, is to do a diss track, a diss song, like a disrespect song, and that would be instead of it being Forrest and Chief Keef and the title to our song, it would be Forrest, the title of my song, and then I'd put in parentheses Chief Keef Dis. And essentially, I'm going to spend that song trashing Chief Keef or trashing whoever it is. The, the thing is that like YouTube doesn't recognize whether it's like a friendly song with Chief Keef or an antagonistic song with Chief Keef. For these young guys, all that really matters is that I can penetrate Kind of chief keeps content stream, and that the algorithm will kind of redirect and come toward me. Um, and this is a, this these diss songs, in order to manipulate the algorithm, I think are a really a perfect example of this digital disadvantage that 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 I lay out in the book of how inequality and in technology um, interface. So you can imagine, if you have money, there's whole firms out there called search engine optimization that will that have strategies, or I can go straight to YouTube, and and for a hefty fee, I can pay them money to sponsor my content, to put it in front of people. So if I have enough money, I don't have to resort to these kinds of strategies. Um, But these kids don't have the resources, the monetary resources, so they've invented their own. They've invented DISTRACTS as a way to manipulate that algorithm. Um, so, so that's kind of like in, in terms of the music, in terms of the music videos, that's one of the main ways they're making it, um, that they're, they're putting the stuff online. Um, and it's, it's reaching a lot of viewers. You know, the, the, the Corner Boys, you know, had, had multiple music videos that had, you know, millions of views. And I actually spent a lot of time with these young men. Um, they're actually really pretty savvy at data analytics, which is another reason why, like, I, again, think that like this digital divide way of thinking about them. Doesn't quite get it, you know. We'd sit for hours looking at the analytics pages on the backside of their YouTube channels, um, and they would be able to like look at graphs and look at kind of temporal patterns and see, you know, I did this diss track at this time, and now, you know, my viewership went up, or I posted this thing on Instagram, and uh, my viewership went up. But they're also looking at um, where these views are coming from and you know one of the really interesting things is that a large portion of the views are actually coming from places far away from chicago far away from illinois um you know california texas new york a a a whole hefty portion of views are coming from there the uk a ton of views are coming from there australia canada and what this um showed to me and, and what they often showed to me and like the records of, of messages that people were sending to them, that these were, you know, these were like middle-class, uh, white, non-black viewers. And they would, they would often, the corner boys would often um, kind of remind me that like they were engaging in intentional strategies to deliver to these people what they wanted. And, and for them, what they wanted was to kind of slum it. Um, I, I I use this term, you know, digital slumming in the book to kind of capitalize on the fact that, you know, these audiences have been trying to penetrate black urban spaces for a long time, all throughout the 20th century. We had, you know, uh white folk from the north side coming to the south side to go to cabarets to like dance with, you know, young black men. And so now what we're seeing is those same audiences um are now kind of doing that slumming, um, getting these kinds of transgressive experiences um, online by watching YouTube videos. And in in some cases, um, they are, uh, I I kind of equate this to kind of like the Amazoning of slumming. Um, They are paying these young men um, pretty hefty sums to hang out with them. So in the book, I actually spend a lot of time talking about a trip that a young man named Junior from the Corner Boys and I took. Uh, we flew from Chicago yeah, to, to Beverly Hills. Yeah, right. that was
2: so fascinating. <laughs> there's,
1: this, there's this guy who is fascinated with Chicago drill music and fascinated with gang violence. A, a, a white 20-something named Chad Campbell, as I call him in the book, um, living in Beverly Hills. And he's, he's become so obsessed that he's reached out to a bunch of these different young men and gangs making drill music. And he gave Junior um, an $800 deposit and bought him a ticket to come and hang out with him for about a week or two in Beverly Hills and teach him how to roll a blunt, how to hold a gun. And maybe, maybe if he's lucky enough for Junior to do a feature in one of these guys' YouTube videos. This guy was trying to become an influencer on Instagram and, and really wanted to become like a a West Coast version of like a Chicago drill rapper. And so he was hoping to be tutored in this. Um, So I spent a lot of time with this. He ends up paying Junior about $3,000. You know, and it's all about like him kind of adding this new spice and danger to his life. This kind of middle-class ennui that this guy is experiencing. He brings in this young black man, gang-affiliated man from Chicago to to kind of boost that. Um, Another set of kind of unexpected consumers that I ran into, audience members that I ran into, were um, predominantly white women, middle class, wealthier white women who had met these young men online, you know, via Snapchat or like Instagram via like uh direct messages on Instagram. They would strike up, you know, kind of a phone sex relationship uh via FaceTime, eventually you know these women would come into Chicago spend about a weekend um kind of hanging out with these young men sleeping with these young men often paying them you know buying them outfits or kind of spoiling them in in kind of uh luxury hotel rooms um and so so yeah so so there's this other that variant this kind of this counterintuitive unexpected form of sex work that kind of comes out of this and then finally I, I spent some time talking about um some audience members um from like the local black Chicago religious community. So um pastors would, would turn to these young men in this effort to bring them in and kind of make their churches seem hipper, make their churches resonate with young people because you know, their congregations were getting older and were dying out. And and clearly if your congregation is thinning out, like your church uh, won't survive very long. And like your role as a pastor or minister won't survive very long. So it turned out that like these young men beyond kind of giving online audiences uh, this kind of voyeuristic look inside the ghetto, were also performing a whole set of other functions for this kind of really varied set of audiences that all wanted something out of a relationship with like an authentic, what they saw as like an authentic, real, stereotypical kind of ghetto dweller. Um, And I'll I'll add that like these interactions were some of the, the hardest interactions that I've ever experienced as an ethnographer to just kind of sit with and kind of sit on my hands and not say anything that like there's there, you know, like, these are some really icky um yeah, exploitative and and just troubling. I I had a a really hard this was this was one of this chapter where I talk about this is one of the the more difficult chapters that I've that I've ever written. Um and I, and I wanted to take extra care with it because it's it's there's a whole lot going on. Um so yeah, so 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 these are these are a lot of the audiences and then just very quickly um that last, the last audience that I think really, really matters are their neighbors and their classmates and um, other people in their neighborhood. So I think unlike the folks who are doing kind of digital slumming, these are young folks that engage with their online content for, I think, really different reasons. For a lot of young people on the South Side, consuming this media um, is, is, is sometimes like a, a really effective way to stay safe. So, in that historical context of like these big gangs breaking up, uh, what a lot of people don't realize is that gang colors as identification have kind of gone by the wayside. So, back in the day, you could walk maybe through a neighborhood and you're like, "Oh, that guy's wearing yellow. You know, I know that he's I don't know maybe a Latin king. That guy's wearing red. He's a, a black peace stone. That guy's wearing this color or." I see certain insign- like certain logos or I see certain graffiti that has like a pitchfork on it. And so I know I'm in, you know, so-and-so's turf. Um, when the gangs broke up, all of that kind of faded. So now like it's mostly like folks are wearing black. Uh, graffiti is not, you know, um, as prominently kind of marking territory as it used to the kinds of logos and brands that people would wear. Aren't, necessarily good indicators of like whose turf you're in. Um, So what do you do? Well, young people have realized that the more they watch drill music videos on YouTube, the more drill rappers and their shooters and, and fellow gang members they follow on Twitter and Instagram, the better they can keep like a real time running catalog of who's in every gang, where their gang territory begins and ends, who they're at war with, who their shooters are. I mean, the fact that guys are rapping about who got locked up this morning on a gun charge means that as a young kid who has to walk through your gang territory on the way to school, I now know, because I knew where that guy lived because I watched him post about it on Instagram, I now know that I can walk down that street and there is a lower likelihood of that particular guy or his friends accosting me or assaulting me. Um, so, so kids are are consuming this stuff in large part to 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 stay safe, to to navigate through this patchwork of, of gang territory, and it creates like this really wild, counterintuitive process where, in order to avoid these guys who are trying to make a name for themselves for by like I don't know, documenting themselves, robbing someone, in order to avoid those guys, you go and you watch this video. But that's precisely what he wants, right? He wants clicks and views um, and followers. But now you're following him on all his social media. Now it's like a boost of like, oh, the things I'm doing online are leading more people to follow me. Um, And so then his extreme behavior steps up to try and convey that authenticity. And so you're actually then more likely to need to rely on kind of lurking on his social media profile. So it's this it's this, it's this spiral that I discovered, um, where it's almost like the more people need this stuff to stay safe, the, I I would say like the, the less safe, the whole process kind of makes them.
2: But I just wanted to ask, I mean, you brought up authenticity. So can you speak more about authenticity and micro celebrity, but also how sometimes that content plays a contradictory role for them?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And this is, this is a really big part of the book. Um, you know, this example that I brought up earlier about this young man, AJ, kind of doing this really adorable fathering offline, but at the same exact moment, he's presenting himself like armed and on the corner um, online, is is, is precisely this effort to try to convey um, authenticity. And I, and I draw a whole lot from, from Goffman, I, whole, I draw a whole lot from communication theorists, and um, there's this really helpful concept called context collapse. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to kind of get sociologists to think about this stuff. And, and context collapse, kind of in a nutshell, one of the things it entails is we can imagine your front stage where you do all of your performances and your backstage where you kind of like live your, your real self, your kind of unpublicly performed self. Social media has this really interesting way in collapsing those two, your front stage and your backstage. In a way that people, though we all know that like most folks are exaggerating on social media, nonetheless, like we get the sense that like if someone's posting a ton of consistent images online, then like there must be some kernel of truth to that, right? That like, wow, if this, if all that's on this kid's Twitter account is like him holding a gun in a bunch of different outfits, in a bunch of different settings with a bunch of different people, eventually you might come to the conclusion that like, wow, that kid is armed all the time. Um, he looks like an authentically violent and armed person. What we miss though, is that this context collapse can be manipulated, which is precisely what these young people do, is that they realize that the kind of more authentic it looks, um, right, the, the, the more benefits they can get, but they, they, can, they can kind of juke that. So like one of the techniques... In, in that particular instance, is that young men who didn't own guns or didn't really have regular access to guns would make it the most out of the moments when they did get around guns. So so there's a there's a young man in my research that I write about whose cousin came over to his house and his cousin um, has a gun and he borrowed the gun from the cousin for about, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes and proceeded to take pictures of himself with the gun in like 15 different outfits, um, all within the span of like 20 minutes. And what he strategically did was then for like the next 15 days, once a day, he posted a new picture in a different outfit with the same gun, which to anybody watching who, unlike me, wasn't standing there next to him while he was doing this, you you would assume, right, that this is like a kind of transparent window um, into this young man's life um, so so this kind of disjuncture gets you know in um online this disjuncture gets harder to harder to kind of suss out and and it's that disjuncture that really is key for understanding some of the stakes and consequences for these young people right so like if 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 posting that gun for fifteen days that's not even yours is the way that you get likes is the way that like you get love in the school cafeteria is the way that, um, yeah, is the way that like you get people in your neighborhood to be like, yo, like you've got so many followers on, on Instagram. Um, it turns out that there are people out there who want to kind of expose you to the world. Um, and so in Chicago, and, and I argue that this is actually a new mechanism that is dictating gang violence. That when I would sit down with young men and talk about you know why they were shot or why they shot someone else or the fights that they were that they were in, very often, though certainly not always, but in, in you know in a decent amount, one of the things that they would describe was that someone was trying to expose that like the things they were posting online were actually inauthentic. The things they were posting online weren't actually transparent windows into their lives, and so um, there's this practice in Chicago. Um, called catching someone lacking and and the kind of there 's like this this popular catching lacking challenge that kind of like went all over the internet for a while. people i think copying copying folks in Chicago and essentially to catch like your your ops your rivals your opposition lacking is to like catch them in their backstage moments, so this would be like maybe they 're just like hanging out in front of their house or maybe they 're like at a fast food restaurant with their mom maybe they 're with their sister at like a grocery store, they're, they're out like living the other kinds of social roles that we all live, right? Like they, you can't be, you can't be um, gang banging every single day of your life, right? Like you have to like also be a father and a son and a student and all these different roles. So the idea is you catch them while they're in one of these other roles. You pull out your camera phone, you hit record and you and your boys, like maybe you get them on their knees, maybe you beat them up. Maybe you have them stare at the camera and sp- say disparaging words about their own gang. And the hope is to generate counter evidence to all of the images they've been you know, uploading meticulously for like the last two years to their social media. Because sometimes all it takes is one of these videos showing that they're a coward, showing them crying, showing them pleading for their life. You can put that like, you tag them on Twitter, right? You can, you can tag them on Instagram, you can, you know, post it in the comment section in their YouTube music video. You can put it onto their Facebook page. And what you've essentially done is like you've, you've cut the knees out from their authenticity um, for, the whole world, for the whole world to see. So you've got now these new, these new sources of insecurity and precarity as young people. The, the more popular they get, the more they're recognized in public. And the more they've got people trying to, in Chicago it's called stealing your clout, trying to steal their street cred. So on one hand, you've got all these people trying to out you as being inauthentic. Um, That's the first kind of peril that these young folks face. But then there's this other peril they face in the form of the criminal justice system, which rather than trying to poke holes in their authenticity is buying their authenticity hook, line, and sinker. So that same kid who doesn't own a gun but borrowed his cousin's gun and posted it 15 times, the criminal justice system is happy to introduce this in evidence, say, at pretrial hearings, um, you know, I've, I've, I've now been collecting a lot of stories from public defenders. You know, these things are brought into pretrial hearings to, to either deny someone release or to increase the cash that they would need to pay, increase their bonds, um, because you can demonstrate that, like, look, if we look at this kid's Instagram page or, you know, his Facebook, he clearly is proud of having a gun. He's a danger to the community. So let's lock this kid up this could be a kid who does, who, who's not a danger whatsoever, but, you know, was wrapped up in this, this whole fight for authenticity and sentences. You know, I've, I've been talking to federal public defenders who, um, you know, a young man might be, might be convicted of gun possession and he might have one, They the officers might've found a gun on him, but this, this is certainly not good. Um, I don't want young men carrying guns around, but, um, you know, they found one gun on him. But on Instagram, it looks as though he's been in possession of two other guns. There's a federal sentencing guideline increase if you're in possession of three guns. So suddenly, he's not just sentenced for that one gun that they found on him. He's now also sentenced for those two guns that prosecutors and detectives found on his Instagram. Um so then there's so for the criminal justice system, what what I argue is happening is that prosecutorial power is going way up, um, and young people are essentially being locked up, uh, put behind bars for admittedly dumb and um, not very well thought out ways that they're just trying to make a name for themselves online.
2: So you close the book with some takeaways. What would you like our listeners today to take away?
1: Wow. Yeah. So a lot of takeaways. I think as as a sociologist, of course, you know, I make this I make this um make this statement that we need to we need to really, um, you know, anytime we're talking about uh, kind of young men gang members online, the fights that happen online, like we really need to to hold very strongly at the forefront of our mind that like these are reactions um to folks who are economically marginalized and symbolically just demonized completely. Um, That that you know if we want to reverse some of these trends that I've been pointing out, then we need to really reinvest in a major way um, in in offline opportunities and structural, structural improvements. Um, So that that's certainly like the kind of sociologist take. I think if there's a if there's a big policy take away from this, Um, it's that like, and, and, and it's one way I try to portray these guys um, in the book is that, you know, what would happen if like, rather than seeing these young men as like these hardened gang affiliated young men, like what if we saw them as like some of the premier artists, um, and creatives in the digital age? Yeah. Like if you think about like, they're manipulating algorithms, they're like masters of viral content, they're winning the internet with like. No resources with like no economic resources. These guys are winning the internet. Um, and it just makes me realize that like, you know what? We could, we could use some folks that are savvy like this. Um, you know, right now in this current COVID 19 moment, like how amazing would it have been at the beginning of this pandemic if our public health messaging system had found some way to enlist young men like the young men in my book? Um, to create the kinds of messaging that is not subject to misinformation or disinformation um, that can penetrate the communities that need it the most. Um, like, I, I feel like there's so much potential that these young folks have that we, we, we just haven't capitalized on. But I, but I think that thinking about them as creatives suddenly, I think, opens up a whole new, whole new realm of how we could actually put so much of their work uh, to good use, And importantly, I think that that would provide the exact kind of recognition and dignity and respect um, and communication of value that these young folks are looking for so badly. You know, I I kind of conclude the book saying, like, if we could just give young men of color the dignity that they're so badly dying for, sometimes literally dying for, then, like, we wouldn't be seeing these practices um, in the first place.
2: So today I've been talking with Forrest Stewart about his book, new book, Ballad of the Bullet, Gangs, Drill Music, and the Power of Online Infamy. So what are you working on now?
1: I Right now I've got um, two two kind of big projects that are that came out of the book. The first one I, I mentioned kind of briefly, um, it's a collaboration with um, Sarah Brain, uh, a professor of sociology at um, UT Austin. We are interested in what happens kind of systematically when social media evidence comes into court. And so we're doing this large kind of national interview study with public defenders and defense attorneys, trying to figure out the precise moments when the state is introducing young folks' social media evidence in cases, in criminal cases. So everywhere from like pretrial, in trial and sentencing and probation, um, to try and get at, like, how is the kind of proliferation of digital social media increasing prosecutorial power, and also kind of hiding from plain sight the ways that police officers and police departments are now, um, you know, criminalizing poor communities of color at a kind of even higher rate? Um, I think because much of this stuff, you know, the kind of era of stop and frisk has has kind of ended, and we hypothesized that rather than stopping young people, young folks of color on the streets in front of everyone uh, and the kind of stuff that generates protest that, you know, black lives matter um, has railed against for, for quite some time that now these things are being hidden. Stop and frisk has moved online and it happens in, you know, police officers following young people and, and indicting them for the things that they do um, on social media. So I've got that project. And then, um, a, a project that's a little bit more in like the computer science realm. I've, I've actually been working with a team of computer scientists and we've been developing uh, these machine learning algorithms that uh, we're using to search through Twitter to try to find signals of trauma. So rather than, you know, like the F, what the FBI is, is use machine learning algorithms to search for violence, we're searching for trauma. So trying to figure out, are there... Keywords or emojis or phrases that young people in communities like the South Side are uttering on Twitter that indicate they need us to wrap our arms around them. And what we're trying to do is build um, build an app, build some kind of interface that social workers can use, that you know, uh, healthcare professionals can use, that violence interrupters can use to really step in and and wrap our arms around traumatized young people, hopefully before the police show up um, and and slap handcuffs on them.
2: Great. Well, we look forward to those projects. So thanks again for being with us today.
1: Thank you.